Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Trying to make chemistry that powers our world more efficient and environmentally friendly. So plastics help revolutionise our planet, and we rely on a lot of chemical processes to produce plastics and a lot of other things we rely on in our modern world. But how do we make these chemical processes more efficient and more green to enable it to be sustainable? This week, Sustainable Chemistry. Now, since their discovery, plastics have revolutionised production, manufacturing, and our everyday appliances and our clothing we wear, to our kitchen utensils, to our vehicles we drive, you name it. Plastics have made many things lightweight to enable us to accomplish all kinds of tasks more efficiently than we would have been able to before. Plastics also don't degrade, say don't store bacteria like wood, for example, in chopping boards. They also do a number of other interesting things and useful things for our world. The problem with plastics, though, is that to produce them can be quite difficult. And also, the other major issue is that making them in such a way that uh, doesn't involve lending up with lots and lots of plastic scrap at the end of the process is also quite difficult. Now, certain types of plastics rely on polymers that can't be unscrambled, or at least can't be unscrambled efficiently, because you have to spend more energy and heat to convert them back than you would have just getting rid of them in the first place. But scientists have been working hard to try and make plastic more eco-friendly, to also try and develop what's called a circular carbon economy or a circular economy. We've talked a few times about new developments in plastic recycling that help to make recycling of plastics back into raw materials, pure plastic strain, into which can be reused on and on and on. And this time we're going to look at something else, which is also the catalyst that is used to produce all kinds of things. Now, a catalyst is basically a kickstarter for any type of chemical reaction. And this can be used in fuel, in hydrogen gas, and other production of chemicals and plastics. So catalysts are incredibly important for just basically kicking off a whole bunch of industrial processes all the way up and down the production chain. So to really make a circular carbon economy, a carbon economy that doesn't have net output, but is net zero, or basically reuses and recaptures everything that's produced, we have to really solve the catalyst problem, or at least develop ones that are less negatively contributing to greenhouse gases. This is related to a process conversion called dry reforming, where harmful gases such as carbon dioxide or methane, the greenhouse gases, are processed to produce more useful chemicals that then later on could be refined into plastics or fuel or even pharmaceutical components. Now, this is a pretty effective process, but normally scientists and chemists have relied on very expensive and rare metals such as platinum, rhodium, which can act as that little catalytic spark to kick off this big reaction. Otherwise, that carbon dioxide and methane stays in its state and sort of doesn't dissolve into these useful chemicals. So the job of a catalyst in this instance is to kick off a reaction that could break down these pollutants, carbon dioxide and methane, into something that could be much more useful. Now, prior researchers have looked at whether or not you could use instead of, well, platinum and rhodium, some of the most rarest and expensive metals, a more common base metal like nickel. But the problem with that is that carbon byproducts tend to build up on the surface. You get all these clumps of nanoparticles that bind together on the cheap nickel and really stop it from being an effective and reusable catalyst. Basically, all that buildup of nanoparticles on the surface of the nickel makes it all lumpy in a way that means it practically useless as a catalyst. And that's where researchers from the Korean Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, CAST, 
have been digging into and recently published in the journal Science, including key researcher Kafer to you as one of the authors of the paper and an associate professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at CAST. Now, their idea was to, instead of taking nickel, try to solve this problem that the geometry of nickel ends up with all this build-up on it that ruins its effectiveness as a catalyst. So instead, they produced combination that used steel nickel, a very abundant metal, but also some other slightly less abundant metals like molybdenum and magnesium to produce a more effective catalyst that can speed up the rate of this reaction and one that doesn't have this build-up can work efficiently for more than a month, which is far more than any of the other catalysts that have been looked at before, which really had a pretty rapid degradation curve. So this research group took nickel molybdenum nanoparticles and they put them into a reductive environment in the presence of a single crystalline magnesium oxide, which again, all these ingredients here aren't that rare, which is important for any large, scalable and cheap process. As the ingredients were heated under the reactive gas, the nanoparticles moved onto the pristine crystalline structure, looking for somewhere to hang out and anchor themselves down. The resulting activated crystal sealed its own high-energy active sites and instead permanently fixed all these little nanoparticles, meaning that the nickel-based catalyst wouldn't have anywhere for carbon to build up. The only sites where something could build up or latch onto were already occupied by this nickel molybdenum. What that means is they've effectively made a process which sort of arranges itself using these different chemical ingredients into a pretty optimum structure. One where there's no room for carbon to latch onto as part of the process, and yet still leaves the nickel molybdenum free to interact and act as a catalyst to spark off further reactions. Now, it took almost a year for these researchers to understand the underlying mechanism, says first author Yong Dong Song, who's a graduate student at CAST. It's a quite a complicated structure that they had to develop, and they dubbed this catalyst a nanocatalyst on single crystal edges, or NOSI. The magnesium oxide nanopowder actually comes from a finely structured form of magnesium oxide and allows the molecules to bind continuously on the edge. There's no breaks or defects in the surface, which means that you get a uniform and predictable reaction. Now, this pretty much solves a lot of the challenges that people developing catalysts are facing. There's no reactive black spots or where buildup can happen. There's also efficient, predictable, and consistent reactions across the entire catalyst. And this means that you can actually have a pretty cheap to produce and efficient to run catalysts that convert greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane into raw materials to be used in other parts of the process. Now, of course, there's still issues with making a large-scale production version of such a system, but it shows a way to refine a key and important step of any recycling or circular economy question. And that is how you turn some of the byproducts of pollution or any industrial process back into a safe and simple to reuse form without having to rely on expensive or rare metals, which you emit far more carbon dioxide to mine and harvest. This is some great work from the Korean Advanced Institute for Science and Technology, published in the journal Science. Now another part of the field of chemistry 
targeted to try and improve the efficiency and make chemical engineering safer on industrial scale and in the personal scale is green chemistry. It's the design of chemical products and processes that reduce or eliminate the generation of hazardous substances. Now this could be anything from bad solvents as a byproduct, hazardous fumes, toxic microfibers, you name it. But it's the entire life cycle of a chemical product from its design and manufacturers to ultimately its disposal. It can be also thought of as like sustainable chemistry. It's the idea of preventing pollution at the molecular level and also to I stop the generation of pollution in the first place, either during the production process or over its life. Now, it's an area that is pretty obviously important as we try and make our world more sustainable and efficient. And that's what researchers from North Carolina State University have been recently digging into and have published in the journal ACS Sustainable Chemistry and Engineering. Now, they were looking at a particular aspect of green chemistry, and they've actually found a way to make solvents even greener. And as Milad Abul Hassani, an assistant professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at NC State, states, we've effectively created a platform that makes green chemistry greener. Now, the idea here is to try and improve solvents. Now, solvents play an incredibly important part of any type of chemical reaction or process. Solvents break things down into their root causes. Water is an incredibly good solvent, as an example. So solvents are pretty good. The problem is that switchable solvents, which change their physiochemical properties, are also an area that is often used in green chemistry processes. In particular, a type of switchable solvent does that when they're exposed to carbon dioxide. Now, these researchers were looking at solvents that become hydrophilic in the presence of CO2 and water. Now, that's a pretty interesting combination, but what's more interesting is they managed to find some that then are hydrophobic when the CO2 is removed. Now, hydrophilic means it likes water and attaches to water molecules, and hydrophobic means that it is basically resistant to water and repels water. If you see a waterproof coating, that's made using hydrophobic chemical materials. Now, the reason why they were after a switchable solvent like this that basically flip-flops from between hydrophobic to hydrophilic is that it makes it pretty useful for industry because the solvent can be pretty much removed out of the process by adding CO2 and water. And then you can reclaim the solvent from the process by just removing the CO2. And these make it pretty attractive because one of the big challenges with any type of chemical or industrial process is triggering, as we talked about with catalysts, so triggering something off to start, or removing something once you've added it. If you've ever tried to separate two parts of a chemical reaction, maybe cordial from your water, as an example, you can know just how difficult it is. So if you had an easy way to basically add a solvent to break something down and then get rid of the solvent and leave your byproduct at the end, that would be spectacular. Problem is, if you identify which materials have this switchable solvent properly, you still need to find which combinations of all the different chemicals actually makes an ideal solvent for a certain material. Because not all solvents work on all materials. So you're gonna find the ideal solvent for the job. So they call this this screening candidates process. So to screen the candidates of chemicals to find the right solvent for the job takes a lot of time and is very labor intensive because it involves a lot of testing. 
And once you have and found the right switchable solvable candidate for your job, removing on a large scale can also take an incredibly long time. So to speed up this process and find a solvent faster, Abu Hassani's team made a micro-scale flow chemistry platform. So it's a tiny, tiny little platform that runs on five microliter samples through some gas tubes that are surrounded by CO2. And that means that the solvent can get exposed to CO2 and can accelerate the reaction of the solvent recovery process. And doing this, they can determine a solvent's efficiency using basically cameras watching the solvent running through these tubes. And they can do it in a three minutes, which is insanely fast for trying to analyze thousands of chemical composition candidates. They can just run through a whole batch and see which one they want to pick out, and they can do it incredibly quickly. It means they can get through about 280 different screenings a day, which is pretty amazing to think about. By comparison, normal batch testing techniques would require huge sample sizes, which of course also takes time. And you normally get one test per day because the testing process and the batching process takes six to eight hours. So think about that. They're doing 280 screening tests a day compared to what you could do before, which is just one, which is an insane efficiency boost. Now, this is really important, not so much for solving a problem right now, but for enabling R&D to develop, to identify the best solvent for a job really, really quickly. And that means if some chemical engineer or process engineer is designing a new industrial process, they can identify the right solvent for their green chemistry application really, really quickly. And the easier you make it to do that, the cheaper it is, and the more likely it's going to be done on industrial platforms and new industrial plants that are built. So this is a great process that has been identified here to help speed up and make use of a stalwart of green chemistry, these switchable solvents, and to help them make them even more efficient and even more effective. Some great research published in the journal ACS Sustainable Chemistry and Engineering from North Carolina State University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we found out how to make chemistry sustainable, make more efficient catalysts, and help recover pollutants from the atmosphere using green chemistry. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.